Chapters nine and ten of And Then the Town Took Off by Richard Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter nine. Ed Clark was setting type for an extra when Don and Alice visited his shop. King's in business, the headline said. You don't sound like a loyal subject, Don said. Can't say I am, Clark admitted. Guess I won't get to be a royal printer. What's the story about? Alice asked. The splendid triumph of justice in court this morning? No, everybody knows all about that already. I've got the inside story. What happens next? Just like the New York Times. Where'd you get it? Don asked. Clark winked. Like Scotty Reston, I'm not at liberty to divulge my sources. Let's just say it was learned authoritatively. Well, Alice said, what does happen next? His unconstitutional majesty, King Hector I, will attempt to prop up his shaky monarchy by seeking an ambassador from the United States, the sentry learned today. Such recognition, if obtained, would be followed immediately by a demand for foreign aid. It is the thesis of the self-proclaimed king, known until twenty-four hours ago as just plain Hector, that the satellite status of superior, the traveling townoid, makes it a potentially effective arm of U.S. diplomacy. King Hector will point out to the State Department the benefits of bolstering Superior's economy, especially during its expected foray over Europe, and, barring such misfortune as being shot down en route, into the Soviet domain. The King will not suggest in so many words that Superior would make a good spy platform, but the implication is there. It will also be implied that unless economic aid, which in plain English means food and fuel to keep Superior from starving and freezing to death, is forthcoming from the United States, Superior may choose the path of neutrality. That's as far as I got, Clark said. I suppose the path of neutrality means Superior might consider hiring itself out to the highest bidder, Don asked. That would be one way of putting it, Clark said, undiplomatic but accurate. How does Civic intend to get his message to Washington? asked Don, aware that it had already been transmitted to the Pentagon via the transceiver under his collar. Bottle over the side. My sources tell me they've got WCAV working on short wave. That right, Alice? Don't ask me. I only live there. Do you think Civic is fronting for the Cavalier crowd? Don asked her. I don't remember saying that, she said. I think I agree with you when you said Civic was ineffectual. Who do you think is behind him? Do you think he's king of the kangaroos? Well, Don said, they're the ones who took him away last night. And when he came back this morning, he had all the trappings. He didn't get that coach and six from foreign aid. And Clark said, this is all very fascinating, kids, but it's not helping me get out my extra. Don, why don't you take the little lady out to lunch? You can continue your theorizing over the Blue Plate Special at the Riverside Inn. Only place in town still open, they tell me. Doc Bendy was hurrying out of the Riverside Inn as they reached it. He waved to them. Save your money. His gracious majesty is throwing a free lunch for everybody. Where? At the palace, of course. What palace? Alice asked. The bubblegum factory. He's taken it over. Why the gum factory? Cheeky McPherson offered it to him. Not the factory itself, but the big old house near the West Wing, the mansion that's been closed up since the old man died. They say Cheeky's been given a title as part of the bargain. Sir Cheeky? Alice asked, giggling. Something like that. Lord Chickle, maybe, or Baron de Mouthful. Come on, it should be quite a show. Dozens of people were in the streets, all heading in the same direction. Word of the king's largest spread fast, and on the factory grounds guards were directing the crowd to a line that disappeared into a side door of the old MacPherson mansion. A flag flew from the top of a pole at the front of the house. It was whipping in a stiff breeze, and Don couldn't make out the device, except that a crown formed part of it. One of the guards recognized Alice Garrett and directed her to the front door. She took Doc Bendy and Don by their arms. Come on, she said. We're VIPs. Father must have sworn allegiance. The chief of police was sitting behind a desk in the wide front hall, 
but he now wore a military tunic with a chestful of decorations, including the Good Conduct Medal, Sergeant Court noticed, and the visor of his military cap was overrun with gold curlicues. Well, Vince, Bendy said, I see you got in on the ground floor. General Sir, Vincent Grant, Minister of Defense, Grant said with a stiff little bow, after service. Enchanted, Bendy said, bowing back. Tell me, Vince, how do you keep a straight face? I'll overlook that, Bendy, and I'll give you a friendly tip. The country is on a sound basis now, and we intend to keep it that way. Obstructionists will be dealt with. The country, eh? Well, let's go in and see how it's being run. A clattery hubbub came from the big room on the right. To Don it sounded like any G.I. mess hall. It also looked like one. The line of people coming in through the side door helped themselves to tin trays and silverware, then moved slowly past a row of huge pots from which white-coated men and women ladled out food. At the end of the serving line stood Cheeky McPherson, splendid in purple velvet. He was putting a piece of bubblegum on each tray. On the other side of the room, opposite the servers, King Hector sat on a raised chair, crown on head, scepter in hand, nodding benevolently to anyone who looked at him. On each side of the king, sitting in lower chairs, were members of what must have been his court. Professor Osborne Garrett was one of them, and Maynard Ruback, president of the Cavalier Institute of Applied Sciences, was another. "'Oh, dear, there's father,' Alice said in dismay. "'What is that silly hat he's wearing? It makes him look like Merlin.' "'But Civic doesn't look a bit like King Arthur,' Bendy said. "'Let's go pay our respects. Straight faces now.' "'Ah, my dear,' the king said when he saw Alice. "'And gentlemen, welcome to our court. May we introduce two of our associates, Sir Osborne Garrett, Royal Astronaut, and Lord Rubat, Minister of Education.' Father, Alice spoke sharply to the royal astronaut, how silly can you get? Now, now, child, the king said reprovingly, you must not risk our displeasure. For the time being, our rule must be absolute until the safety of our kingdom has been assured. Sir Osborne, he said, we trust that at a more propitious time you will have a serious talk with your charming but impetuous daughter. My liege, I shall deal with her the royal astronaut said, glowering at Alice. As your majesty has so wisely observed, she is but a slip of a girl. Her father's apparent sincerity left Alice speechless. She looked from Bendy to Doc, but they seemed to consider discretion and mask-like faces the better part of candor. Well spoken, Sir Osborne, the king said. He clapped his hands and a servant jumped. Dinner for these three. Find a table, my friends, and you will be served. Don firmly guided Alice away. She had seemed about to explode. They found an empty table out of earshot of the king, and three footmen, looking like refugees from Alice in Wonderland, immediately began to serve them. Bendy spread a napkin over his lap. Let's curb our snickers and fill our stomachs, he said, and later we can go out behind the barn and laugh our heads off. Meanwhile, keep your eyes open. They were eating meatloaf and potatoes. The meatloaf was so highly spiced that it could have been almost anything. I wonder where his worship get all the grub, Alice said. I don't know, Don said, but it certainly doesn't look as if he needs any foreign aid. Alice put down her fork suddenly, and her eyes got big. She said, you don't suppose? Suppose what? Bendy said, spearing a small potato. I just had a horrible thought, she laughed feebly. It's ridiculous, of course but I wondered if, by any chance, we were eating Joe Negus. Don't be silly, Don said, but he put down his fork, too. Of course it's ridiculous, Bendy said. Hector only put Negus to sleep. He didn't kill him. Besides, Joe Negus wouldn't stretch far enough to feed this crowd. Is that why you're not eating any more? Alice asked him. Why, no, Bendy said. It's merely that I've had enough. It's true that Hector could have used his scepter on other transgressors, but, no, I refuse to admit that he's turned cannibal. He isn't eating, Don pointed out. I'll guarantee you he has, though. I've never known Hector to miss a meal. No, Hector may be a fool and a dupe and power-hungry to boot, but he's not a cruel man or a deranged one. 
No, Alice said. I dare you to ask him what's in the meatloaf. All right. Bendy got up. I'll ask to see the kitchen to compliment the chef. Want to come? No, thanks. I might be mean to father again. She and Don watched Doc Bendy go to the improvised throne and talk to Civic. The king laughed and stood up, and he and Bendy crossed the room. They went through a door behind the line of servers. Don pushed his plate away. You certainly spoiled my appetite. I'm sorry, Alice said. Maybe it's hereditary. Look at father in that idiot hat. Sir Osborne, honestly, Don, if we ever get back to Earth, I'm going to get out of Superior as fast as I can. What's it like in Washington? Dull, he said. Humid in the summer. And when you've exhausted the national monuments, there's nothing to do. Nothing? Don't tell me you don't have a girlfriend back there. No, don't tell me. I don't want to know. Oh, Don, what a terribly boring place this must be for you. Boring, he said. I never had such a wild, crazy time in my life. Furthermore, he said, there's nobody like you back in Washington. She beamed. I'd kiss you right here, only Doc Bendy's coming back. Heck, I'll kiss you anyway. She did. Ahem, said Bendy. Also, cough, cough. If you two can spare the time, there's someone I'd like you to meet. We're, we're through for now, Alice said. Who? One of our hosts. The power behind the shaky throne of Hector I. I think you'll like him. He has a magnificent tail. Hector was very cooperative, Doc Bendy said. I guess he figured he couldn't keep it a secret for long anyhow, so he decided to be frank. After all, half the town saw them take him away. You mean Civic admits he's only a figurehead, Don asked. Oh, he wouldn't admit that. His story is that it's a working arrangement, a treaty of sorts. He's absolute monarch as far as the human inhabitants are concerned, but the kangaroos control Superior as a piece of geography. I knew Father couldn't have done it, Alice murmured. They went down a flight of stairs off the main hall to a basement room. It was luxuriously furnished as every room in the mansion must have been. There was a rug over inlaid linoleum and a blazing fireplace. A huge round mahogany table stood in the center of the room. Hector Civic sat in one of the half-dozen leather armchairs drawn up to the table. In another sat a furry, genial-looking, blue-gray kangaroo. Only it wasn't really a kangaroo, Don realized. It was more human than animal in several ways. Its bearing, for instance, had dignity, and its round eyes had intelligence. A thick tail at least three feet long stuck to his face under the backrest of the armchair. As Doc Bendy had said, the tail was magnificent. Civic nodded and smiled, apparently willing to forget his flare-up at Alice. I'll introduce you, Civic said. I mean, we'll introduce you. Oh, the hell with the royal we, as long as I'm among friends. This is Gizzle, and what I'm trying to say is that he doesn't speak English, doesn't talk at all as far as I can tell, but he understands the language, and he can read and write it. That's why all this. He indicated the letter and number squares on the table. They were from sets of games, Scrabble, Anagrams, I-Cubes, Lotto and Poker, and Poker Dice. My granddaughter met Gizzle, you'll recall, Doc Bendy said. Either this one or one like him. We don't know yet whether Gizzle is a personal name or a generic one. Let's find out, Don said. He sat down at the table and began to form squares into a question. Wait a minute. Doc Bendy broke up Don's sequence. The amenities first. Spell out greetings or some such things. Manners, boy. Sorry, Don started over. He spelled greetings, then Alice Garrett, then Don Court, and pointed from the squares to Alice and himself. I assume you've already introduced yourself, he asked Bendy. Bendy nodded, and the kangaroo-like creature inclined his furry head in acknowledgment to Alice and Don. Then he... Don had already stopped thinking of the creature as an it, formed two words with his tapering, black-nailed fingers. Pleasant, he communicated. Gizzle, and he tapped his chest. Don turned to Bendy. Now can I ask him? With his majesty's permission, Bendy said solemnly. Hector nodded. Don left the three names intact, distributing the rest, then put three squares together to spell man. 
he pointed to the word, and then to Civek, Bendy, Alice, and himself, excluding the creature. Well, I like that, Alice said. Do I look like a man? Let's keep it simple, woman, Don said. The creature nodded and pointed again to Gizzle, then to himself. He doesn't understand, Don said. It's quite possible his people don't have individual names, Bendy said. Let's call him Gizzle for now and go on. Okay, Don thought for a moment, then formed a question. Might as well get basic, he said. Question. Are you from Earth? Answer. No. At the risk of irritating the others, Don repeated the questions and answers aloud for the benefit of his eavesdropper in the Pentagon. Question. Are you from the solar system? Answer. Not yours. Question. When did you reach Earth? Answer. 1948. Your calendar. Question. Why? Answer. Friendship. Question. Why has no one seen you sooner? Answer. Fear. Question. You mean you frightened our people? Answer. No, I mean fear of your people. Question. Why? Answer. Gizzle resembled Earth animals. Question. Was Superior the first place you landed? Answer. No. Question. Where was it? Answer. Australia. The home of the kangaroo, Doc Bendy said. No wonder they had a bad time. I can imagine some stockman in the outback taking umbrage at a kangaroo asserting its equality. Let me talk to him for a while, Don. Question. How many are there of you? Answer. Many. Question. How many? Answer. No specific comment. Question. Are you responsible for raising Superior? Answer. Entirely. Question. How? Answer. Impossible to explain with these. Question. Where is Superior going? Answer. East for now. Question. And later? Answer. No specific comment. Question. Three thousand lives are in your hands. Answer. Gizzles have no malevolent designs. Question. Thanks. You said friendship brought you. What else? Answer. Trade. Cultural exchange. Question. What have you to trade? Answer. We'll discuss this later with duly constituted authority. Question. Who? King Hector? Answer. Terminating interview with goodwill assurances. Wait, Alice said. I haven't had a chance to talk to him. She formed letters into words. I don't think he's being very frank with us, but I have a few random questions. Question. How many sexes have Gizzles? Answer. Three. Question. Male, female, and... Answer. Neuter. Question. Are there babies among you? Answer. Babies are neuter and develop according to need. Question. Confidentially, what do you think of father's science? Answer. Unfathomable or meager knowledge. Question. Flatterer. Answer. Ending conversation with pleasant regard. Question. Likewise. Gizzle slid back his chair and got up. King Hector stood and bowed as Gizzle, who had nodded politely to each in turn, walked manlike without hopping to a corner of the room, which then sank out of sight. He's quite a guy, that Gizzle, Hector said, taking off his crown and putting it on the table. Makes me sweat, he said, wiping his forehead. Are you the duly constituted authority? Bendy asked him. Who else? Somebody's got to be in charge till we get Superior back to Earth. Sure, Bendy said. But you don't have to rig yourself up in ermine. I also have a sneaking suspicion that you aren't exactly anxious to get Superior down in a hurry. I'll overlook that remark for old time's sake, but I defend the kingship. A show of force was necessary to prevent crime from running rampant. Maybe, Bendy said. Anyhow, I appreciate your frankness in introducing us to Gizzle and what he modestly describes as his meager knowledge. Since you've already admitted that he's the one who provided the big feed, will you ease Alice's mind now and assure her that what she was eating wasn't Negusburger? Negusburger? The king laughed. Is that what you thought, Alice? Not really, she said, but I couldn't help wondering where all the food came from all of a sudden. Over here. The king led them to a corner where Gizzle had sunk from sight. The top of the elevator, now level with the floor, 
blended exactly with the linoleum tile. I don't know how it works, but Gizzle and his people have their headquarters down there somewhere. All I have to do is place the order, and up comes food or whatever I need. Would you like to try it? Love to, Bendy said. What shall I ask for? Anything. Anything? Anything at all? Well, Bendy looked impressed. This will take a moment of thought. How about a gallon? No, as long as I'm asking, I might as well ask for a keg of rum, 151 proof. Up it came, complete with spigot and tanker. Fabulous, Bendy said. He rolled it out of the elevator, and the elevator went down again. Let me try, Alice said. If Doc can get a keg, I ought to be able to have, oh, say a pint of Chanel number five. Would that be too extravagant? A simple variation in formula, I should think, the king said. What came up for Alice didn't look in the least like an expensive Paris perfume. In fact, it looked like a lard pail with a quantity of liquid sloshing lazily in it. But its aroma belied its looks. Oh, heaven, Alice said, smell it. She lifted it by its handle, stuck a finger in it, and rubbed behind each ear. It's a bit overpowering by the pint, Bendy said. He drained off part of a tankard of rum and looked quite at peace with the world. You better get yourself a chaperone, Alice, if you're going to carry that around with you. I admit they're not very good in the packaging department, but that's just a quibble. Could I have how many ounces in a pint, sixteen one-ounce stopper bottles, and a little funnel? Easiest thing in the world, the king said. John, anything you'd like at the same time? Save it a trip. I've got an idea, Your Majesty, but I don't know whether you'd approve. Even though I work in a bank, I've never seen a ten-thousand-dollar bill. Do you think they could whip one up? I really don't know, Hector said. It could upset the economy if we let the money get out of hand, but we can always send it right back. Let's see what happens. The elevator came up with the bottles, the funnel, and a green and gold bill. It was, on the face of it, a thousand-dollar bill, but the portrait was that of Hector Civic, crowned and ermine, and the legend on it was, payable to bearer on demand, ten thousand dollars. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private, and is redeemable in lawful money at the treasury of the Kingdom of Superior. Signed, Gizzle, Secretary of the Treasury. Chapter 10 Don didn't know what he might learn by skulking about the freezing grounds of Hector's palace in the faint moonlight. He hoped for a glimpse of the kangaroo Gizzle to see if he were as sincere off-guard as he had been during their interview. But his peering into basement windows had revealed nothing, and he was about to head back to the campus for a night's sleep when someone called his name. It was a girl's voice from above. He looked up. Red-headed Geneva Jervis was leaning out of one of the second-story windows. "'Well, hello,' he said. "'What are you doing up there?' "'I've sworn fealty,' she said. "'Come on up.' "'What?' he said. "'How?' She disappeared from his sight, then reappeared. "'Here,' she dropped a rope ladder. Don climbed it, feeling like Romeo. "'Where'd you get this?' "'They've got them in all the rooms, fire escapes. Old man McPherson was a precautious man, evidently.' she pulled the rope back in. Jen Jervis had a spacious bedroom. She wore a dressing gown. "'What do you mean you swore fealty?' Don asked. "'To Hector?' "'Sure. What better way to find out what he's up to? Besides, I was getting fed up with that dormitory at Cavalier. No privacy. House mothers creeping around all the time. Want a drink?' Don saw that she had a half-full glass on the dresser. Next to the glass stood a bottle of bourbon with quite a bit gone from it. Why not, he said. Let's drink and be merry, for tomorrow we may freeze to death. Or shot down by reds, she poured him a stiff one. Here's the happy endings. He sipped his drink, and she swallowed half of hers. I didn't picture you as the drinking type, Jen. Revise the picture. Come sit down. She backed to the big double bed and relaxed into it, lying on one elbow. Don sat next to her, but upright. Tell me about this fealty deal. What did you have to do? Oh, renounce my American citizenship, and swear to protect Superior against all enemies, foreign and domestic, the usual thing. Have you got a title yet? 
Are you Dom Jervis? Not yet. She smiled. I think I'm on probation. They know I'm close to Bobby, and they'd like to have him on their side for all their avowed independence. They're not so terribly convinced that Superior's going to stay up forever. They're hedging their bets, it looks to me. It looks to me that maybe Bobby Feeble might not understand. He's the kind of man who demands absolute fealty from what I've seen of him. Oh, to hell with Bobby Feebold. Jen took another swallow. He's not here. He's had plenty of time to come if he was going to, and he hasn't. To hell with him. Let me get you another drink. No, thanks. This will do me fine. He drank it and set the empty glass on the floor. Jen drank off the last of hers and put her glass next to his. Relax, she said. I'm not going to bite you. She lay back and her dressing gown opened in a V as far as the belt. She obviously wasn't wearing anything under the gown. Don looked away self-consciously. Jen laughed. What's the matter, boy? No red blood? She rolled herself off the end of the bed and went to the dresser. Another drink? Don't you think you've had enough? She shook her red hair violently. Drinking is as drinking does. Trouble is, nobody's doing anything. Exactly. Everybody's acting as if Superior's one big pleasure dome. Civic's on the throne and all's well with his little world. Even you've joined the parade. Why? I don't buy that double-agent explanation. She was looking in the bureau mirror at the reflection of the top of her head peering up from under her eyebrows. I'm going to have to touch up the tresses pretty soon or I won't be a redhead any more. She looked at his reflection. You don't like me, do you, Donnie boy? I never said that. You don't have to say it, but I don't blame you. I don't like myself sometimes. I'm a cold fish, a cold, dedicated fish. Or I was. I've decided to change my ways. I can see that. Can you? She turned around and leaned against the bureau, holding her glass. How do you see me now? As an attractive woman with a glass in her hand. I wonder which is doing the talking. Rhetorical questions at this time of night, Donnie. I think it's me talking, not the whiskey. We'll know better in the sober light of morning, won't we? If that's an invitation, Don began, I'm afraid. Her eyes blazed at him. I think you're the rudest man I ever met, and the most boorish. She tossed off the rest of her drink, then began to cry. Now, Jen, he went to her and patted her shoulder awkwardly. Oh, Don, she put her head against his chest and wept. His arms automatically went around her comfortingly. Then he realized that Jen's muffled sobs were going directly to the Pentagon through his transceiver. That piece of electronics entrapment taped to his skin, he told himself, was the least of the reasons why he could not have accepted Jen's invitation if it had been an invitation. He lifted her chin from his chest to spare the man in the Pentagon any further sobs, which must have been reaching him in crescendo. Jen's face was tear-stained. She looked into his eyes for a second, then fastened her mouth firmly on his. There was nothing a gentleman could do, Don thought, except return the kiss. Rude, was he? Jen broke away first. What's that? she said. Don opened his eyes, and his glance went automatically to the door. It would not have surprised him to see King Hector coming through it in his royal night clothes but Jen was staring out the window. He turned. The sky was bright as day over in the direction of the golf course. Don made out a pinpoint of brighter light. It's a star shell, he said, a flare. They went to the window and leaned out, looking past the corner of the bubblegum factory. What's it for? Jen asked. Don pointed. There, that's what for. A blimp, she said. It's landing. Is it an Air Force job? I can't make out the markings. I think I can, Jed said. They're P.P. Private pilots, Senator Bobby the Bold. Jen Jervis clutched his arm. S.O.B., she whispered fiercely. Don Court was down the rope fire escape and away from the mansion before it woke up to the invasion. As he crossed the railroad spur, he had a glimpse of Jen Jervis hauling up the rope and of lights going on elsewhere in the building. There was a lot of whistle-blowing and shouting and a lone shot which didn't seem to be aimed at him. 
Don waited at the spur behind a boxcar to see how the Hectorites would react to the landing of the blimp. A few men gathered at the front gate and looked nervously into the sky and toward the golf course. Others joined them, armed with shotguns, pistols, and a rifle or two, but not with King Hector's paralysis gadget. It was clear that Hector had no intention of starting a battle. His men apparently were under orders only to guard the mansion and the bubblegum factory. No one even went to see what the blimp was up to. Don found as he neared the golf course that the people from the blimp apparently had no immediate plan to attack either. He found a sand trap to lie down in. From it he could watch without being seen. The star shell had died out, but he could see the blimp silhouetted against the sky. Men in battle dress were establishing a perimeter around the clubhouse. Each carried a weapon of some kind. It was all very dim. Don remembered his communicator. Court here, he said softly. Do you read me? Affirmative, a voice said. Don didn't recognize it. He described the landing and asked, Is this an authorized landing or is it Senator Thebold's private party? Negative, said the voice from the Pentagon, irritatingly G.I. Negative what, Don said. You mean Thebold is leading it? Affirmative said the voice. What's he up to? Don asked. Negative, the voice said. Don blew up. If you mean you don't know, why the hell don't you say so? Who is this, anyhow? This happens to be Major Johns, the OOD sergeant, and if you know what's good for you. Don stopped listening because a man in battle dress, apparently attracted by his voice, was standing on the green, looking down into the bunker where Don lay, pointing a carbine at him. I'll have to hang up now, Major, Don said quietly. Something negative has just happened to me. I've been captured. The man with the carbine shouted down to Don. Okay, come out with your hands over your head. Don did so. He hoped he was doing it affirmatively enough. He had no wish to be shot by one of the senator's men, regardless of whether that man was authorized or unauthorized. Senator Thebold sat at a desk in the manager's office of the Raleigh Country Club. He wore a leather trench coat and a fur hat. Wing commander's insignia glittered on his shoulders and a cartridge belt was buckled around his waist. A holster hung from it, but Thebold had the heavy forty-five on the desk in front of him. He motioned to Don to sit down. Two guards stood at the door. Name? Thebold snapped. Don decided to use his own name but pretend to be a local yokel. Donald Court. What were you doing out there? I saw the lights. Who were you talking to in the sand trap? Nobody. I sometimes talk to myself. Oh, you do? Do you ever talk to yourself about a man named Oscar Garrett or Hector Civic? Thebold looked at a big map of Superior that had been pinned to the wall, thus giving Don the benefit of his strong profile. Hector's the king now, Don said. Things got pretty bad before that, but we got enough to eat now. Where did the food come from? Don shrugged. Thebold drummed his fingers on the desk. You're not exactly a fount of information, are you? What do you do for a living? I used to work in the gum factory, but I got laid off. You know Geneva Jervis? Who's he? Don said innocently. Thebold stood up in irritation. Take this man to O&I, he said to one of the guards. We've got to make a start someplace. Are there any others? Four or five, the guard said. Send me the brightest-looking one. Give this one and the rest a meal and a lecture, and turn them loose. It doesn't look as if Civic's going to give us any trouble right away, and there isn't too much we can do before daylight. The guard led Don out of the room and pinned a button on his lapel. It said, Bobby the Bold, in peace and war. What's O&I? Don asked him. Orientation and integration. Nobody's going to hurt you. We're here to end partition, that's all. End partition? Like in Ireland, keep superior in the USA. They'll tell you all about it at O&I. Then you tell your friends. Want some more buttons? Don was fed, lectured, and released, as promised. Early the next morning, after a cup of coffee with Alice Garrett at Cavalier's Cafeteria, he started back for the golf course. Alice, in a class-cutting mood, went with him. 
the glimpses of the Thebold plan which Don had had from O&I were being put into practice. Riley Street, which provided a boundary line between Raleigh Country Club and the gum factory property, had been transformed into a midway. The Thebold forces had strung bunting and set up booths along the south side of the street. Hector's men, apparently relieved to find that the battle was going to be psychological rather than physical, rushed to prepare rival attractions on their side. A growing crowd thronged the center of Riley Street. Some wore Thebold buttons. Some wore other buttons, twice as big, with a smiling picture of Hector I on them. Some wore both. The sun was bright, but the air was bitingly cold. As a result, one of the most popular booths was on Hector's side of the street, where Cheeky McPherson was giving away an apparently inexhaustible supply of hand warmers. Cheeky urged everybody to take two, one for each pocket, and threw in handfuls of bubble gum. Two of Hector's men set up ladders and strung a banner across two storefronts. It said in foot-high letters, Kingdom of Superior, Land of Plenty. A group of Thebold troubleshooters watched, then rushed away and reappeared with brushes and paint. They transformed an advertising sign to read, in letters two feet high, Superior, USA, Home of the Free. Hawkers on both sides of the midway vied to give away hot dogs, boiled ears of corn, steaming coffee, hot chocolate, candy bars, and popcorn. There's a smart one, Alice pointed to a sign in Thebold territory. The gripe room, it said, over a vacant store. The senator's men had set up desks and chairs inside, and long lines had already formed. Apparently a powerful complaint had been among the first to be registered because a Thebold man was galvanized into action. He ran out of the store, and within minutes the sign-painters were at work again. Their new banner, hoisted to dry in the sun, proclaimed, Blimp Mail. Underneath in smaller letters it said, How long since you've heard from your loved ones on earth? The Thebold blimp will carry your letters and small packages. Daily direct connections with U.S. mail. You have to admire them, Alice said. They're really organized. One's as bad as the other, Don said. Impartially, he was eating a Hector hot dog and drinking Thebold coffee. Have you noticed the guns in the upstairs windows? No. You mean you're on the senator's side? Both sides. Don't stare. I see them now. Do you see any gizzle sticks? The thing Hector used on Negus? No, just conventional old rifles and shotguns. Let's hope nobody starts anything. Look, Alice said, grabbing Don by the arm. Isn't that Ed Clark going into the gripe room? It sure is, gathering material for another powerful editorial, I guess. But within minutes Clark's visit had provoked another bustle of activity. Two of Thebold's men dashed out of the renovated store and off toward the country club. They came back with a senator himself, making his first public appearance. Thebold strolled down the center of the midway, wearing his soft aviator's helmet with the goggles pushed up on his forehead and his silk scarf fluttering behind him. A group of small boys followed him, imitating his self-confident walk and scrambling occasionally for the Thebold buttons he threw to them. The senator went into the gripe room. Looks as if Ed has wrangled an interview with the great man himself, Alice said. You didn't say anything to Clark about our talk with the Gizzle, did you? I did mention it to him, Alice said. Was that bad? Half an hour ago I would have said no. Now I'm not so sure. A speaker's platform had been erected on the senator's side of Riley Street, and now canned but stirring band music was blaring out of a loudspeaker. Thebold came out of the gripe room and mounted the platform. A fair-sized crowd was waiting to hear from him. Thebold raised his arms as if he were stilling a tumult. The music died away, and Thebold spoke. "'My good friends and fellow Americans,' the senator began. Then a Hectorite sound apparatus started to blare directly across the street. The sound of hammering added to the disruption as workmen began to set up a rival speaker's platform. Then the music on the north side of Riley Street became a triumphal march, and Hector I made his entrance. Thebold spoke on doggedly. Don heard an occasional phrase through the din. Reunion with the USA, and this un-American, 
this literal partition. But many in the crowd had turned to watch Hector, who was magnificent and warm-looking in his ermine robe. Loyal subjects of Superior, I exhort you not to listen to this outsider who has come to meddle in our affairs, Hector said. What can he offer that your king has not provided? You have security, inexhaustible food supplies, and above all, independence. Thebold increased his volume and boomed. Ah, but do you have independence, my friends? Ask your puppet king who provides this food and for what price, and how secure do you feel as you whip through the atmosphere like an unguided missile? You're over the Atlantic now. Who knows at what second the controls may break down and dump us all into the freezing water? Hector pushed his crown back on his head as if it were a derby hat. Who asked the senator here? Let me remind you that he does not even represent our former, and I emphasize former, state of Ohio. We all know him as a political adventurer, but never before has he attempted to meddle in the affairs of another country. And you know what lies beyond Western Europe, Thebold said. Eastern Europe and Russia. Atheistic, communistic, red Russia. Is that where you'd like to come down? For that's where you're heading under Hector Civic's so-called leadership. King Hector, he calls himself. Let me remind you, friends, that if there is anything the Soviet Russians hate more than a democracy, it's a monarchy. I don't think what your chances would be if you came down in Kremlin land. Remember what they did to the czars. Then Senator Bobby Thiebel played his ace. But there's an even worse possibility, my poor misguided friends, and that's for the creatures behind Hector Civic to decide to go back home and take off into outer space. Has Hector told you about the creatures? He has not. Has he told you they're aliens from another planet? He has not. Some of you have seen them, these kangaroo-like creatures who, for their own nefarious purposes, made Hector what he is today. But, my friends, these are not the cute and harmless kangaroos that abound in the land of our friendly ally, Australia. No, these are intelligent alien beings who have no use for us at all, and who have brazenly stolen a piece of American territory, and are now in the process of making off with it. A murmur came from the crowd and they looked over their shoulders at Hector, whose oratory had run down, and who seemed unsure how to answer. "'Yes, my friends,' Thebold went on. "'You may well wonder what your fate will be in the hands of that power-mad ex-mayor of yours. A few thousand feet more of altitude, and Superior will run out of air. Then you'll really be free of the good old USA, because you'll be dead of suffocation. That, my friends—' At that point, somebody took a shot at Senator Bobby Thebold. It missed him, breaking a second-story window behind him. Immediately a Thebold man behind that window smashed the rest of the glass and fired back across Riley Street over the heads of the crowd. People screamed and ran. Don grabbed Alice and pulled her away from the immediate zone of fire. They looked back from behind a truck which, until a minute ago, had been dispensing hot-buttered popcorn. "'Hostilities seem to have commenced,' Alice said. She gave a nervous laugh. "'I guess it's my fault for blabbing to Ed Clark.' "'It was bound to happen sooner or later,' Don said. "'I hope nobody gets hurt.' Evidently neither Thebold nor Hector personally had any such intention. Both had clambered down the platforms and disappeared. Most of the crowd had fled, too, heading east toward the center of town, but a few, like Alice and Don, had merely taken cover and were waiting to see what would happen next. Sporadic firing continued. Then there was a concentration of shooting from the senator's side, and a dozen or more of Thebold's men made a quick rush across the street and into the stores and buildings on the north side. In a few minutes they returned under another protected burst with prisoners. Slick, Don said. Hector's being outmaneuvered. I wonder why the Gizzles aren't helping him. The Thebold loudspeaker came into life. Attention, it boomed in the senator's voice. Anyone who puts down his arms will be given safe conduct to the free side of Riley Street. Don't throw away your life for a dictator. Come over to the side of Americanism and common sense. 
There was a pause, and the voice added, No reprisals. The firing stopped. The Thebold loudspeaker began to play on the sunny side of the street. But nobody crossed over. Nor was there any further firing from Hector's side. Lay down your arms, the loudspeaker blared in another tune from Tin Pan Alley. When it became clear that Hector's forces had withdrawn completely from the Riley Street salient, Thebold's men crossed in strength. They worked their way block by block to the grounds of the bubblegum factory and proceeded to lay siege to it. With Hector's civic immobilized, Senator Bobby Thebold went looking for Geneva Jervis, accompanied by two armed guards. He was trailed by the usual pack of small boys, several of them dressed in imitation of their hero, in helmets, silk scarves, and toy guns at hips. Alice, unable to reach the besieged palace to see if her father was safe, had asked Don to go back with her to Cavalier after the Battle of Riley Street. Her mother told Alice that the professor was not only safe on the campus, but had resigned his post as royal astronaut at Hector's court. "'Father broke with Hector?' Alice asked. "'Good for him, but why?' "'He and Dr. Ruback just up and walked out,' Mrs. Carrot said. "'That's all I know.' Your father never explains these things to me. But if my intuition means anything, the professor is up to one of his tricks again. He's been locked up in his lab all day. The campus had an air of expectancy about it. Students and instructors went from building to building, exchanging knowing looks or whispered conversations. A rally was in progress in front of the administration building when Senator Thebold arrived. Don and Alice joined the group of listeners for camouflage and pretended to pay attention to what the speaker, an intense young man on the back of a pickup truck, was saying. The time has come, he said, for men and women of uh, perspicacity to shun the extremes and tread the middle path. To avoid excesses as represented on the one hand by the uh, fraternal dictatorship of the Hectorites, and on the other by the uh, pseudo-democracy of Senator Thebold, which resorts to force when thwarted. I proclaim, therefore, the course of reason, the way of science and truth, as exemplified by the, uh, the Garrett Ruback, uh... Senator Thebold had been listening at the edge of the little crowd. He spoke up. The Garrett Ruback axis, he suggested. The speaker gave him a cold stare. And who are you? Senator Robert Thebold, representing pseudo-democracy, as you call it. Speak on, my young man. Like Voltaire, I will defend to the death. But you know what Voltaire said. Yes, sir, the speaker said abashed. No offense intended, Senator. Of course you intended offense, Thebold said. Stick to your guns, man. Free academic discussion must never be curtailed. But at the moment I'm more interested in meeting your Professor Garrett. Where is he? In, in the bell tower, sir, right over there. He pointed. But you can't go in. No one can. He looked at Alice as if for confirmation. She shook her head. We'll see about that, the senator said. Carry on with your free and open discussion. And remember, stick to your guns. Sorry I can't stay. He headed for the bell tower, followed by his guards. Alice waited till he had gone in, then tugged at Don's sleeve. Come on, let's see the fun. Alice, the speaker called to her, was that really Senator Thebold? Sure was, but what's this Garrett Ruback axis? What's everybody up to? Not axis, that was Thebold's propaganda word. It's a movement of, oh, never mind, you don't appreciate your own father. You can say that again, come on, Don. As Alice closed the door to the bell tower behind them, they heard Professor Garrett's voice from above. Attention interlopers, it said. You have come unasked, and now you find yourself paralyzed, unable to move a muscle except to breathe. Stay down here, Alice whispered. There's a sort of vestibule one flight up. That's where Thebold must have got it. Father spends all his time guarding his holy of holies. Nobody gets past the vestibule. She frowned, but I didn't know he had a paralysis thing, too. He probably swiped it from Hector before he broke with him, Don said. Professor Garrett's voice came again. I shall now pass among you and relieve you of your weapons. Why, if it isn't Senator Thebold and his strong-arm crew? I'm honored, Senator. Here we are. 
three archaic forty-fives disposed of. Very soon now you'll have the pleasure of seeing a scientific weapon in action. Don, standing with Alice on the steps of the administration building, didn't know whether to be impressed or amused by the giant machine Professor Garrett had assembled. It was mounted on the flatbed of an old Rio truck, and various parts of it went skyward in a dozen directions. Garrett had driven it onto the campus from a big shed behind the bell tower. The machine's crowning glory was a big, bowl-shaped sort of thing that didn't quite succeed in looking like a radar scanner. It was at the end of a universal joint which permitted it to aim in any direction. What's it supposed to do? Don asked. From what I gather, Alice said, it's Hector's paralysis thing adapted for distance. Only, of course, nobody admits Father stole it. It's supposed to have anti-gravity powers, too, like whatever it was that took Superior up in the first place. Naturally, I don't believe a word of it. But where's he going with it? He's ready to take on all comers, I gather. Please don't try to make sense out of it. It's only father. The young man who had addressed the student rally took over the driver's seat, and Professor Garrett hoisted himself into a bucket seat at the rear of the truck near a panel which presumably operated the machine. Maynard Ruback sat next to the driver. The small army of dedicated students who had been assembling fell in behind the truck. They were unarmed except for faith. Senator Thebold and his two former bodyguards, de-paralyzed, sat trussed up in the back of a weapons carrier, looking disgusted with everything. Are we ready? Professor Garrett called. A cheer went up. Then on to the enemy in the name of science. Don shook his head. But even if this crazy machine could knock out Hector's and Thebold's men and the Garrett-Ruback axis reign supreme, then what? Does he claim he can get Superior back to Earth? Alice said only, Please, Don. The forces of science were ready to roll. There had been an embarrassing moment when the old Rio's engine died, but a student worked a crank with a will, and it roared back to life. The Garrett machine, the weapons carrier, and the foot soldiers moved off the campus and on the Shaw's Road toward Broadway as a turnoff for the country club. They met an advanced party of the Thebold forces just north of McEntee Street. There were about twenty of them, armed with carbines and submachine guns. As soon as they spotted the weird armada from Cavalier, they dropped to the ground, weapons aimed. Senator Thebold rose in his seat. Hold your fire, he shouted to his men. We don't shoot women, children, or crackpots, he said to Professor Garrett. All right, mastermind, untie me. End of chapter 10. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.